Hello, welcome to Midnight with the Lunatics. We're not at midnight yet, but we're reaching there eventually. Hello, I'm Malcolm, and here reporting from the bottom of the surface, the surface of the ocean, an ocean near the ruins of Atlantis, is my friend Tarek. Yeah, there's a lot more pressure down here than you'd think. Today, what we're talking about is what makes a good story. A fairly broad topic. I don't think we're referring to any drama oh, in particular. Know. Okay, so this is kind of a broad question because, honestly, I'm just going to clarify right off the start with this that that you guys don't have to agree with us on what we say. I mean, the question itself mm. is very subjective. Everybody probably I mean, there is real one no real answer. I just thought it was something worth discussing. Well, yeah. With that being said, one of the things that I think makes makes a good story is is taking something is realism, and I don't mean that in the typical sense. I mean that the more of your everyday life you put in a story, the more it's going to. I feel like the more it's going to connect with the audience. And the more its emotion is going to hold. Well, you you do you need to. Have, I think that yeah. Well, go ahead. You know, a certain element of that sort of realism. You mean? Well, I, I I think it has to be grounded in a way. Like it could it could take place anywhere, but as long as it as long as it, um, the, the people can relate to it, I think it, you can you you'll um, that's true. You'll be already be halfway there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You yeah. just the setting can be as fantastical as you like, just so long as there's that kind of personal connection. And you know, I've, I've, uh, I've been, I've been, uh, when you brought up this topic, uh, I remember, uh, the first thing, this is, uh, this is going a little, little, little ways from that, not, not too far, but the first thing that came to mind was, and I know you haven't seen them, but I was, was the comparison of Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. And I, and even again, I don't think you've seen these, but still, uh, you I think you'll relate to the concepts. But basically, that the first movie I think people forget is very is very the plot is very simple. Like it's just it's very straightforward, and not not really that much happens. But that allows for a lot of complexity under the surface, like a lot of smaller things to to make it feel whole. And then. You go look at Blade Runner twenty forty forty nine, and they try doing making it as complicated as possible, and I think really just sort of misunderstood the 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 like the the genius of the writing of the first one. They lost the genius because they muddled it too much. Yeah, and it's not that they had to do the same thing, but I do think that they they try they they really tried to make it seem grand and. Uh, and I think they misunderstood that with meaning that it's complicated. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, I can definitely I, see that. Yeah, that's. I think that's kind of a trap uh, all writers and you know authors can run into. Yeah, you want to try. You don't want to try to overburden the story because usually the story, if you keep the story simple, it can develop over time. And also it would, it also helps preserve that, uh, that, uh, connection with the, with the audience. Though there's a, though another thing I'd say that, um, I, I would ask you about is what, what do you, how do you feel about, uh, the, the benefit of having comic relief characters? I think that a lot of the time, I think 
I think it's not necessarily an essential element and not every story needs comic relief characters, but I feel like mm. in most cases there needs to be there needs to be that lightheartedness as a sort of balance right. to to the darkness of the tale. I mean, there's an entire and in a way, the comic relief characters in their own right I think is an evolution of what Carl Jung referred to as the jester archetype in fiction, which was like, which was, and where back then it wasn't just to be comic relief. It was to also point out the flaws within the story. Um, there are a few modern examples. Gilgamesh from fate actually comes to mind. Um, so in that way, I feel like comic relief characters are important to make sure there's that sort sort of balance mm. between dark and light, so yeah. it doesn't shift too much in one direction. Because then the story can start to get a little dull or repeti- repetitive in certain instances. Though I think that certain projects that are like overwhelmingly like dark or overwhelmingly light and don't really have a uh, counterbalance can still work. Like I think it's a lot harder to do, but That's you, true. But I mean, you can do. Like reserve. Yeah, exactly. You know, there, there's, there's, the there's very little lightness in that. One of the examples I thought of in regards to that balance is actually um, Skullgirls. Is a mm. How's that? In reg- in, well, in particular, characters like Peacock. I think I'm going to use Peacock as an example. On the one hand lighthearted aspect the, the the references to old to old cartoons tunes the sort mm. of playful nature of her character on the other hand her entire backstory involves an innocent girl being transformed into a horrific cyborg right dark and light i think another good well i suppose a, a good example that comes to mind of that jester archetype and also the and also the light and dark balance you're talking about is uh you know, is uh, I guess as overplayed as he is Deadpool. That's true. Yeah, Deadpool is definitely like that. I feel like I don't know if this is right. I don't know if this is inaccurate, but I feel like sometimes people forget a little bit about the more darker aspects of his character. Oh, for sure. I think, especially uh, at this point in time, there's a. I think the lightness is sort of uh, what what they see. I mean. Constantine, weirdly, also comes to mind. And to a lesser extent, super, the entire show Supernatural is kind of like that as well, from what I can tell. Because, of the, because while I haven't seen the show... Didn't you watch, like, the first episode? I think... I only saw, like, the first episode. But from what I can tell the show from my research into it before, the brothers spent just as many time times laughing and joking around with each other as they do fighting monsters. Mm-hmm. It's all horrific. Mm. Well, even Animorphs cracked jokes several times throughout the series. Yeah, even though it's a kids' uh, series, you've mentioned many times how dreary it is. Yeah, and that. And then they took the joke even farther by deciding to create a TV show. <laughs> you mean that great TV show that was a perfect version? It's a horrible TV show. Don't get remember me when he was like save the world. Represented every single. Character. Remember that part? You remember when he was like save the world? Remember that part in the books where Marco? It's essentially ironic 
like because Marco's entire point in the books was that he didn't want to involve and get involved in the invasion for personal reasons. Yeah, but didn't he? Early, say, he was not that late back. But did he say save the world? No, he doesn't. In fact, in fact, what happens in the very first book when they're about to invade the Earth Pool is literally everybody agrees to go except Marco. He's the only one who thinks the whole thing is crazy. Hmm. And he only goes anyway to keep them from fucking up. So, um, kind of a misrepresentation of his entire fucking character. Those covers always creep me out. Covers are always freaky. They always creep every kid out at the Scholastic Fairs. Yeah, I think that scared me more than Goosebumps. (laughs) Anyway, we're getting off topic. I'm so sorry. Yeah, well, yeah, just a little bit. But yeah, but Malcolm, what what else would you say makes a good story? I think world I think world world building is absolutely crucial. I mean, mm. even if you're building a story, and no, I think it's interesting because I think even if your story takes place somewhat in the real world or like Chicago or something, I think you still need to build the world to a certain extent, yeah, to make it seem believable. yeah, I mean it, it's not just the fantastical stuff. I think it's important that people. Are invested enough in the world that it's plausible, even if it's just the barest elements. Hell, Bastion, which I discussed last time, did an amazing job with this, and they had barely any setting elements to work with at first, considering mm. the whole thing starts on a platform and everything is destroyed. Mm. Didn't have available to a lot. They didn't establish like the where, when, and why from the beginning. I think if you're doing a Though I think in the case of maybe like a short story or something, it's not it's uh, you you can get away with not really doing that if it's more of a contained kind of thing. If it's if it's sort of I, I know even then I guess there's world building involved. Like if it was just like one guy in a room, you know, you know, there's still there's still sort of building blocks you need to put together for the to, for the audience to really. Uh, visualize it all and sort of yeah believe and right. that, that these people are where they are because yeah, and you need to make sure to do your research correctly and, and that's another thing that's really important for a lot of stories is the research element i think yeah i think that that factors and i i think you should do you if you're going to especially if you're tackling heavy stop heavy topics but even if it's not that, I mean, even if it's just in general, you're doing some of fantasy, some kind of fantasy story. I think you should do a considerable amount of research. No matter what you're writing, I feel like research is important. Yeah, and also, I I think it's very important for for authors in general to just go outside of themselves uh, in their work, and and a research is 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 mainly why that would work at all. Yeah, I mean. Even in fantasy worlds, you need you need to study the different. You need to learn about the different plants you could use for it, and the different animals, and how certain st- certain land formation. Or I mean, there's, hmm. there's and and also all the matter of the language. I mean, research needs to be done because I feel like again, it adds a bit of realism to the story, hmm. and and also shows that you know what you, what you're doing right off the bat. Yeah, there was wing it, but a little bit of research, even that, is important. Yeah, there was, what was it? It was like, I think there was like a serious book that this guy wrote recently 
but he didn't do his, he didn't really do his research, so he ended up putting a, a Zelda recipe in it because he thought it was real. Oh my god! I don't know how somebody could confuse a Zelda to think think something from Zelda. Yeah, recipe just, from Zelda was. It, yeah, like using made real. up words from that too. It's like. I just wanted to mention on the topic of what we mentioned earlier about keeping the story simple. I think The Hobbit is a really good example. Oh yeah, for sure. Because it's not very long. You think about like the plot of the Hobbit is really really simple. It's mm-hmm. not very long, and it's basically can be summed up as dwarves, wizard, and Hobbit go to save mountain from dragon, which in general is pretty simple. I think that writers shouldn't try to force the pieces together. I feel like they should just they should just put their fingers on the keyboard. They should just start writing. And they should let the pieces come together on their own. They should let things progress on their own. Mm. Because you do enough writing and the story will surprise even yourself. So I looked it up. And so apparently the the author, this was the author of The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. And his new book, his historical new book, had Highland Shrooms and Leaves of the Silent Princess plant in it. And again, this is why you should do your research. So then you don't have a Zelda recipe in your historical serious book. Anyways, you can keep going. Yeah, like, I feel like, I mean, I mean, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that planning out the story is a bad thing. That's okay, especially when it comes to the basic framework. Mm. But I think that a lot of the time you just want after you do your right research, you just want to write as much as you can, and the story will progress, and some characters will develop on their own. You'd be surprised. I mean, that sort of thing usually happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think good writing is somewhat stream of consciousness. Oh, very much so. Stream of consciousness is a very... I feel like it should be utilized more, honestly. Mm. It's funny. It's funny that we're doing this topic today because I was actually earlier I was doing a um a really cool masterclass from um David Sedaris. Uh, and who's that? Um, he's the guy who wrote the really funny New York Times article about the Christmas about being in the Christmas Macy's. He made a lot of really funny satirical New York Times articles. Oh, did he? <laughs> I'm, yeah, and one of the radio he once did a um. He once did a radio story about how he used to work in in Macy's as like this Christmas elf. Oh, I think I remember now. He, and he talks all the time. He he talked a lot about how, like we discussed, there's this personal element to, to the stories that you need to incorporate, and that everybody really has a story to tell. Hmm. And that writers should really take every writers have this unique opportunity compared to to other people that they could take the weird and embarrassing moments in their life and make those into stories. Also, get out in the world. Not, and it doesn't even have to be like traveling to another country. That's what I mean. But just going to the grocery store, observing, asking people questions. He says that he likes to ask. He he says that he used to ask strangers with questions all the time. And one time, he asked a person person near him at the grocery store. Or when was the last time they saw a monkey? And they said that, oh, can you smell the monkey on me? And that led him to mm. a care center for monkeys. <laughs> I mean, 
asking the right questions and just observing can make an incredible mm. impact on writing. The what other else? thing, which I suppose is sort of, uh, I guess you call it uh, rudimentary, but uh, what do you think about sort of the the structure of a story and, and how it's and how it sort of gets pigeonholed into the three act structure which of course is is the is the, is a, the like the way to go but i think but how do you feel about a more fluid approach i think with the, the three act structure um i think the three act structure is like a lot of other rules in fiction if you want to subvert it need to know it and have used it well mm. well enough you need to be experienced with that it's like the rules of a lot of storytelling i feel i mean there are ways to subvert the three-act structure i mean maybe starting the story at a different place that kind of reminds me of uh oh yeah i don't think you've seen it either but memento the movie basically it's oh i've seen it i haven't seen it but i've heard of it yeah so basically it's sort of it sort of goes back and forth between color scenes and black and white scenes the black and white scenes are done in order but the color scenes are backwards so it's essentially so in that way it's uh, you know i think at its core it's kind of a run of the it's kind of run of the mill thriller but the, because uh, they do that it's well, they, I think they, they subvert the structure in a more interesting way. That that, that doesn't just uh, uh, combust because they didn't do it right. Um, but I think no one was able, and I'm not sure if I'm right on this, mm. I think no one was only able to take that chance to do that with Memento because he had experience as a director. Yeah, I, th- I think in that movie he had only... Actually, I think it's kind of miraculous that one actually worked because at that point he had only done one other movie and it was not very good. But, you know. It's it's tricky. I mean, generally it's just easier to follow the three-act structure. And one Mm. thing that's important, though, if you were going to subvert it, is just don't lose track of your story and don't lose your audience. That's right. It still needs to be simple enough for the audience to follow it, even if you are subverting the traditional structure. Hmm. Because I think, yeah, because I guess another thing. Uh, Well, go ahead. I think this happened to me once when I was watching the Witcher Netflix series at one point. I think there was this really weird. I think Mm -hmm. the moment when the, the, all the scenes at, at the wedding where Geralt learns about Siri being the child surprise and such. That was really confusing to me because they were happening, like, they were interspersed with scenes that were from the present, and it was sometimes hard to tell what chronological order the scenes were happening in, and it just sort mm. of started to lose me. Oh, that because uh, it that, wasn't abundantly clear. Like, there weren't any hands. Right. That that reminds me very strongly of a terrible show I watched recently, uh, The Haunting of Bly Manor. The thing, the thing about it was. Because did you see uh, the one before at Hill House? No, I haven't. I haven't seen either of them. All right, Hill House is pretty good. It's not, you know, it's not particularly scary, but I think it's pretty good. But this one was just like the the the, the pacing of this was was horrible. Like because first of all, I have, I have a whole laundry list of issues with it, but 
uh, first and foremost, they switch back and forth in time only, at least a few times every episode. And that right there is the first red flag. Jesus. And then, uh, and then on episode eight, they um, it, it starts ramping up, and finally, you know, and and be, because it has been switching so much, I never really got to know the main characters as they are in time, like in the present. So that first, that's another problem, another red flag. And then on in episode eight, they it's sort of ramping up, and it's like, oh, it's we're we're um we're coming towards the conclusion. So now it's sort of staying in the present right and then the very next episode let's go back to like the what is it the 16th century or whatever and it's and then i'm like oh okay they're doing that i guess and they're doing i'm like okay then let's get back let's get back to the present the characters i'm here to watch and they end another red flag is that they introduce characters you've never seen before in this almost in the second to last episode and they do it for the entire episode and i was like what is this going to be over and it's and the pacing is just so strange and especially just i don't know it's and then there's and then one one other the last thing really i think is another sort of sin to commit is that is is especially in a long form tv series is um having having a uh, plot line that you just drop like very early on and then it's like and then it feels like what was the point of that because in this one there's this very serious trauma that this main character has. And at the end of episode three, they never mention it again. It's like, oh, I guess the trauma is over with. And it's, it's just, and it's just so disingenuous to the characters. And it's, I don't know. That, that whole show is sort of. Just sort of dismiss the trauma. Yeah, they absolutely do. I'm sure that I actually found, found pull this off really well. That's been on. I think it's been on Netflix for a bit. Have you seen um, Equinox? Uh, no. It's a um, it's this really good paranormal Danish paranormal mystery show that I've been watching. It's really really good. Mm. Um, and I not only like, I not only like how how you can clearly tell between when the tell the scenes that take place in the past and the scenes that take place in the present, even if it does sort of jump around a bit in terms of the time frame. Mm-hmm. I also like how a minor detail I like is oh god, you don't mind spoilers, do you? No, I don't. Because I like how they reveal characters' connections with I like the certain little details. Like I like how how Early on in the show, because the show centers around around a girl whose sister goes away when she's young and never returns. She goes away on a school trip and then disappears along with several other students. Mm. And then the girl starts having these weird dreams about this this horned creature, and her mother gets her supposedly like shamanistic friend to help with that. One thing I really really like in the scene where the girl's older sister is shown going into the woods with her friends and undergoing some kind of ritual if you pay close enough attention you can actually see that same shamanistic friend in the background Mm. and then without anyone pointing it out and then it shows that it shows that that the mother was there as well without saying anything Mm. 
that's a very good and again this is the kind of show that just lets the plot flow naturally yeah and lets things just develop over time in that instance but, I su- in that instance i suppose it's uh, uh, in that instance i guess it's uh, visual storytelling it's very visual storytelling and it's funny because the scenes where the girls in that weird dream world keep reminding me of the, the upside down mm. to a certain extent mm-hmm. but also while i haven't seen pants labyrinth i swear to god the might i've seen pictures of the horn of the monster from that from that and it kind of the monster the horn monster in the show kind of reminds me of that so the only bit of pan's labyrinth i've seen is the very beginning where they uh, smash that police officer's face up in spanish class and then that was it i haven't seen it good anecdote right Oh, I you know actually another another point that another point that that uh that that reminds me of is is um when characters become caricatures, and uh, my one of my favorite examples right. of this is uh in the movie The Shape of Water. Um, I like the movie, but and I I think I I like the idea of the story, but the problem is that the characters. By the very end, they become caricatures, and that's all they are, really. And also, the creature gets powers we never knew about because the plot needed it, but that doesn't matter. Like, just they feel like ideas, one idea each uh, that that the that the writer wanted, and that, and that's just not good storytelling because it sort Funnily of enough, because it de- because it dehumanizes no, them. Right, you they basically just reduce the characters down to a vague creature with with basic powers and and well the girl is kind of limited in her development to just her disability, right? Well yeah, but actually, actually she's one of the ones that I, I thought worked pretty well because because she didn't talk. Uh I think I'm right about that. It's been a while. But the other one and also I think uh Richard Jenkins character was, was uh pretty good. Even, but but just generally everyone else, especially especially the villain, he was just he was really just a uh, like they could have gotten anybody to do it. I think, and that's and they got Michael Shannon, and he's one of the great actors. It's funny, I think because I think one of the one of the movies I remember that had that still worked despite a kind of. One-dimensional villain is um, Dune. Actually, now that I think about it, yeah, yeah I, I haven't actually seen first, that. Yet. Well, to me, at least, and this is coming from someone who hasn't really read the book. Mm. For somebody that originally appeared as kind of a one-note character, they really do a good job fleshing him out and making him. And making him a legitimate threat, and I think that was kind of impressive because his appearance is kind of ridiculous. I think you need, and this is going off of something that I once learned from watching the Neil Gaiman masterclass. But um, you need to let characters become characters. You can start them on. Don't get me wrong. You can start them on their intended path, but I think you need to let them surprise you at times. Mm. Um, and do things that you're not expecting because I think that's crucial to their development. Because I think, in that sense, you're sort of letting them think for themselves and grow as characters. 
Though actually, it's a very yeah. good discussion to have, and I don't think it'll it'll ever stop being a good discussion because right. it's wor- worth talking about. I mean, sort of yeah. something this whole thing about storytelling is always changing. So another question, I, I another question I'd have for you is, what are the sort of what is the what is like the bare minimum things that you need for a good story? I think. The bare minimum you need is a, a setting, a plot, and characters. Beyond, I think that's just the bare. And you don't even need that many characters. Mm. How you could have three characters in the entire story, and it could probably, or at least the major character, and it could probably still work. Yeah. I mean, quality. In my opinion, quality over quantity. Um, you can have. You don't. Even, you don't need to have a big sprawling world if you don't want it. You don't. You can well. You still have to do world building, but you don't have to have a huge, massive. You right. don't need to build Middle Earth. Is what I'm saying. You can you can work with less. I I definitely agree with that. Because this brings me back a bit to uh, Blade Runner, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Because it it's it's very much um, yeah. It's 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 the it's the contrast of simplicity and over over complexity. And um, another, not, yeah, one, yeah. One of the things that this is, no, no, go ahead. No, one of the things this is reminding me of is Limbo. Yeah. Limbo has like, Limbo is an incredible story, frankly. But when you think about it, the boy is the only actual important character in the game. Uh, yes, and also, um, the, I think it was them who also did Inside the game. Yeah, same people that do inside. Yeah, and it's the, it's the same thing there. It's yeah. it's it's a very sort of uh, it's a singular path, but that sort of lets the the world grow as 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 you encounter it. It also, funnily enough, reminds me of a really good. It reminds me of Wally mm. a lot. Yeah. When you think about it, Wally and Evie are the only two named Wally, Evie, and Otto are the only three named characters in the entire movie. Well, there's the captain. Well, there's the captain, but eh, he's not really that. Consider so I suppose it's important. Uh, well, I mean, he is in the third act, but uh, that's about it. So I think it's like there. There's really only there's, four, I'd say. <laughs> I mean, as as far as as far as really importance four, to the plot, right? yeah. Very little to work with, but just but also even at the beginning of the movie when it's just. Mm. Wally. That's right. I mean, when it's just Wally and he's on his own, uh, it, it's just so. Inc- I think that's really impactful. It also sort of reminds me of the first few scenes of Up, where it was just Carl and Eleanor. Inside Out did a similar thing through only having. Inside Out had more characters than Up, I'd say, but I think keeping it. I think what really helped is that they didn't go overboard with with the amount of emotions they had inside Riley's head. I mean, they said they had more ideas, but they chose to just go with joy, anger, sadness, mm. fear, and envy, which was a smart decision because, again, less is more. and They didn't want to overboard in the story with characters. You can even just tell, again, like with Limbo, you could, another good example that like Limbo just tells a story through one character that comes to mind is Nihilumbra. Oh, yeah. When you think about it, unless, unless you count the void and narr- and the narrator as characters, and you literally really Born is the only character in the game. 
Yeah. No, you shouldn't. Because when you think about Born as the only character in the game, and most of the game is you just wandering through these landscapes as they're slowly consumed. Mm-hmm. And it's still a point in the story in particular, particularly because there's no one else and the, the world feels so mm-hmm. abandoned. Another, um, some, something related to that is uh, when you have it, when you have a similar thing of it being sort of through one character, but there being a very, and there's also, a, but also having a larger sort of secondary cast, sort of that sort of dot dot the landscape and make it, and and help uh, build the world. And and one of my favorite examples of that is uh, Max Payne, as mentioned last time, because there's a lot of characters you run into, but they're not they they don't they don't stick around so long that they feel like um, they don't feel one dimensional. No, that no, I, they 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 stick around long enough that they leave an impact, and and technically they do have an impact oh, on I the see. plot as well. Okay. But they don't stick around so long that they become sort of the focus, because Max is the focus, him and his uh, and his uh, revenge, and so I think what they do really is uh is going back to the world building, but also having a, having this cast of characters is 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 they help uh, make this place uh, I think it's New York uh, feel more real or at the very More least alive. engage you yes yeah alive exactly if hollow knight did a similar thing honestly mm. because aside from the not it the first game in particular is like that because when you think about it the only main character the only main characters that i can think of are the knight hornet and the hollow knight at the end and and the rest are all just secondary characters that you meet on the adventure. Mm. And but again, because the they included so many secondary characters in the game, even within the ruins of Hollow Nest, you find all these scavengers. It actually does definitely feel like the world feel more alive. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially when you gain the ability to read the creatures' thoughts. Mm. And it actually makes it hit so much harder if you relate to any of the characters when the infection does does start taking over and when a lot of the, the bugs start dying. It has more impact precisely because of that. Mm. There's another, another, another thing I wanted to ask was that uh, sometimes there's... Sometimes the characters are almost even though you follow them, they feel sort of inconsequential, but, but the product is still, um, is, is still worth watching as an experience. And, um, cause have you ever run into that? Cause I know I have, and I'll speak on that in a minute, but have you ever run into that sort of thing where it's sort of more about sort of the, the, the experience of watching it or reading and then it is like necessarily the characters. I think for me, at least, for me, at least, from my childhood, I think Fantasia was like that. Oh, that's, yeah. I think it's a pretty perfect I example, think yeah. Fantasia was a very good example of that. Since that had, there wasn't even a story, there wasn't really a, I mean, even though I, that one didn't really have any central characters in it mm. that were, like, it didn't really have, like, a linear story. It was more just an ex- like you said, just an experience of the ex- just experiencing the world and experiencing the music. 
right. letting yourself go to it. And I felt that way as well when I went to many, well, the few Cirque du, Cirque du Soleil shows I went to were also mm. very much reminding me of that. So how do you feel about sort of, how do you feel about having a story where the characters are, are unlikable, like pretty much all of them? Do you think that could work? I think it could. I think it definitely could work. Mm. Um, I, I think that likability is not necessarily an essential thing. Mm. I mean, you could you could make all your characters assholes as long as again you keep the personal connection in the story. Right. Right, and especially because. The less like I feel like the less likable you make the characters, the more room there might be for character development. That's true. I mean, it could still work if they're all good. Yeah. I'm just saying that, that you could really develop them. They don't and redeem them. I mean, they don't have to, they don't have to stay asshole throughout the entire story. Yeah. At the same time, keeping them assholes could actually fit the message the message you're going for more. That that um that especially is uh, reminds me of. Uh, and I don't think you've seen this, but uh, the movie Raging Bull. Pretty, every, I haven't I think, seen it. No. Yeah, I think every character in that movie is an asshole. But, but, uh, and and the problem is they you never you never get to uh, you, you. It's sort of like the it's sort of the consequence of that. That's the point of the story. But you never really get to like empathize with the characters. Like not really. They all they you you always feel no it is because I think because you always feel distant from them and I think that's a key difference is is that you can have unlikable characters as long as you understand them but with with and 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 sort of um oh, I see and, and get them really but with Raging Bull you really don't and I think that's that's a very key difference. Because they're they are very dis uh, sort of they have a distance between you and them. So whether they're likable or unlikable doesn't yeah. matter as long as they're relatable. Well, yeah, as long well not not even really that, but it's just as long as you uh, you get where they're coming from, like or like how they work, and you believe them. Yeah, yeah, and you build on that. I mean, you build on that framework, right? That I think can really be a be be a key to a good story, and and is one of the gears in the uh, as far as the uh, as characters go. I know unlikable characters. I feel like Malcolm in the Middle is kind of like that as well. A bit, the yeah. Entire family. Mm-hmm. Well, the yeah. Whole... Well, even yeah. Well, like even Malcolm is is admittingly such a huge asshole throughout the entire series. I remember there was one episode in particular mm. where he was trying to hold in his stark and cynicism, and at the end he gets an ulcer because of that. I think that, that they, the series does such a good job of showing that Malcolm kind of is an unlikable person. I mean, he is an asshole, and the rest of the mm. family are plenty flawed as is. Yeah, yeah. But he's not at all likable at times. It can come up with a very much of a prick. Mm. But, but it's good because um, uh, I, you know, especially because um, I think prior to that there were so many, 
show so many uh, sitcoms that had that were that, that were led by us by kids and they were they were very wholesome and they were very sort of they could do no wrong it, it feels more realistic than that which is really funny mm. there's also just the rest of the family has walked over well i mean reese is delinquent we keep running away <laughs> Lewis, Lewis is a control freak mm. i was too Play it back. I mean, like they, they, Francis, Francis literally gets sent to a military academy. I mean, they all have flaws, and that's actually kind of why I love the ending of the show when Malcolm is about to go live a successful life and go to college, and the entire and his parents end up sabotaging him, and then they reveal that <laughs> the most hilarious twist. It's revealed that the entire family was planning on sabotaging Malcolm from the beginning. Even his siblings were in on the plan. <laughs> Because it just shows that all of them are pretty much assholes. And I that. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, that's not all they are. They don't want it. At the same time, they they had good they had good reason to do it because they rightfully justifying it, saying they don't want Malcolm to have the easy way out. They want him to struggle. They hmm. because he'll learn more if he struggles. So there yeah. is an underlying message to that, and that's what I mean when I say you can build on that it also reminds me of my favorite book series because i'll be honest harry dresden isn't the most likable protagonist either frankly i mean as funny as he is he he can often come off i mean for one thing while he loses this early on the series he can be kind of chauvinistic but even beyond getting past that he's a reckless moron who's kind of an asshole to his friends at times who has anger issues and is constantly fucking up. And a lot of the series is because of him fucking up. Mm. But despite that, he keeps trying to be a good person. Even when he's trying to do good, he ended up committing genocide and wiping out an entire race of vampires. He keeps making these sacrifices and he keeps recklessly making these decisions. I mean, he impulsively became a servant to Mab in exchange for the power to save his daughter, which ended with an entire genocide. I mean, he always fucks up, and the series doesn't let him forget it. Hmm. At the same time, I like how unlikable he is because, again, it leads to some very good character development. Another thing that I that I that I think of is I've never seen it, and I know very little about it. I I, I think you know about it, but Waiting for Godot. Do the characters in it um, don't they speak gibberish? They speak gibberish a lot of the time. I mean, none of their words have any... If I'm being honest, a lot of their words don't have any actual meaning and their conversations don't usually go anywhere. Right. That was that was the thing I wanted to ask about was sort of how important is dialogue? I think in that... In Waiting for Godot, to me, the setting is not important. I think what it, what is important, most of all, is the dialogue to an extent. But mm. I think that's just... The reason it's funny because I think the reason the dialogue is so important is to, is because it shows just how unimportant it is. Mm. By talking and by having these conversations that lead nowhere and have no actual meaning, the the author is right. The playwright is brilliantly showing just how pointless pointless it is for them to be having these conversations in the first place. Mm. Not enough. It's saying something that, and it's saying something because in the end, even 
the actual waiting is pointless. Godot never shows up. They just keep... I mean, they keep saying they're waiting for him, but there's no actual character called Godot in the play. Mm. And it's funny because by the end of the play, at the end of the character, Vladimir Estragon, Pazu, and Lucky, the four main characters, it just completely devolves into... Into, into a mass of bodies as they all stumble and fall on top of each other and just becomes chaos. Mm. But it's waiting for Godot just puts so little focus on the setting and it's almost purely dialogue. Mm-hmm. It's almost purely dialogue and action. Especially in Act One, it's just Vladimir and Astrogram just pointlessly talking to each other and even admitting that they're not certain they've ever met Godot or if he'll even arrive. It's all just so pointless. And I think that was kind of the feel is going for. I mean, the setting the setting is literally described as simple as just a tree next to a road. And it's just so brilliant to me. Oh, yeah. And tie, sort of tying into that, how important is dialogue in making a good story? On, just on a broad scale. On a broad scale, it really depends... It really depends on what kind of story you're trying to tell. If you're telling a story, if you're telling, like, for example, like what I mean is if you're telling a story like Fantasia, that's more about the experience than anything else, then dialogue isn't necessarily important. Mm. But if you're telling a story where you want the audience to have a personal connection to it, well, even then, if you want the st- yeah. story to have a per- if you want the story to have meaning, then dialogue is is it dialogue? Honestly, is just a matter of preference to me. Mm. Like you can tell a good story without two characters talking. Limbo was an amazing story with no dialogue. Journey was. Evil Lumber was. Mm. Ashton. Well, actually, Ashton doesn't count because that dialogue. Yeah. Um, well, Ashton is just purely narration. Right. If I'm being honest. Um, you don't it's weird it's weird how much value to me it's weird to me how much value is placed on spoken dialogue because it's not necessary it's not, not as essential as people think if you do it right if you've handled the execution right you can tell a story you can tell a very good story without saying any without the characters saying anything it can work, especially if you're going for something more absurdist. Right. But, I mean, it really depends on what kind of, again, it really depends on what kind of story you're going for. Yeah. There's... And the overall message. Well, I kind of wonder what you think about conveying a message in a story, and like, and are, and are there, how to do that well, and are there different ways to do it? Um... About conveying a message in a story, I think. Yeah, well, you can. I think there are two ways of. I think there are two ways of going about that. You can either have an idea of what your message is going to be from the beginning, which is fine, and works a lot of people, or you can start with no clear message and let it emerge in the story on its own. Emerge in the story on its own. Mm. But you don't necessarily have to know what point you're trying to make from the beginning. You can let that grow over time because it really, because really, the more of the story you have written, the more clear it'll be to you. Mm. And the more ideas you'll have of what you what ultimately, and by the end of the story, you'll have a greater idea of what the message ultimately is. 
it really depends on what approach you want to go for because either one works and the message the message can be as subtle or obvious as you want it to be i wouldn't recommend forcing the message and i would honestly in terms of the message i i think that you shouldn't put too much emphasis on what the message is especially if you know from the beginning i feel like you should just oh, yeah. let it let the audience figure that out on their own mm. yeah um do you know the movie they live um yeah i know about it i haven't seen it but i know about you know because it. it's it's sort of these these aliens these horrific looking aliens are among us and they look like us and we can't tell and it's in the director john carpenter he um he, he basically the, the message of the movie is against sort of like the consumerism of, at the time and sort of and what was going and that sort of uh, was going on in america among the wealthy and i think that the, the way he told it was perfect because it never it never took over the story and it was sort of, and it was always underlying like it never it never um, became more important than the than the story itself it was i i guess right, best, i guess the word for the it best. is subtext yeah, like I think overall, you the, the the primary focus should be on telling a good story. Yeah, let the message develop over time, but just focus on telling a good story first and foremost because that's what's important to the readers. Mm. It, it you can have as good a message, frankly, you can have as good and complex a message as you want, but if you don't have the good story to go along with it, it won't matter. Um, there was another one of my favorite movies is the original Black Christmas from 1974 it's a wonderful movie and it's been remade twice and the most recent version of it they sort they what they tried to do was make it sort of a they tried to make it like a women empowerment movie and i think that's a i think that's a good i think that's a good idea especially with that story but the problem is not only is that how they marketed it as being that specifically but also they they, they they made that get in the way of it of, of of making a good story and then good characters and you know all this stuff. But the problem to me is that if you push a message too much, there's only so far you can push a message before it becomes either a religious text or some kind of propaganda. Frankly, mm. in my opinion, I mean, and you need to be careful of that because there is. There is a line. You also definitely just want to let your let the reader draw their own conclusions. I think that's I think that's a sort of an undervalued element. Stories are fluid things, and the meanings of stories constantly change over time. So, mm. of course, people would have different interpretations of what they ultimately mean. In conclusion, since we're reaching that point, uh, if you were to give it a few sentences, what would you say makes a good story? Personal connection, observation, humor. Well, thank you for joining us. Have a safe quarantine. And we'll see you again. <laughs>